Well, good evening, everyone. It's good to see you here tonight. <clears throat> Welcome to Houston Baptist Church. We are continuing our study on survey of the New Testament. Now, this evening you'll be receiving three handouts at the proper time. We're looking at 1st and 2nd and 3rd John. I'm putting these together so that I can finish up in the allotted time that I was given. So you'll be getting three handouts. Make sure you get all three of them in our studies tonight. You can prepare your Bibles, however, by turning to 1st John. 1st John, 2nd John, 3rd John is our study. Now I might, I might just um, advertise a little bit, I guess, or plug Next week, if it's the Lord's will, we're going to be looking at the book of Jude. And I'll give, of course, a handout and a survey of Jude like I have all the other New Testament books. But Jude is special for me because I, for my THD, my doctorate in theology, I was required to do a 50,000-word thesis uh, on the book of Jude. And so I looked at every word, parsed it, gave my own translation, and then gave commentary. So Jude is a, a very um, important book to me, and I hope you'll be here. I'll give you the benefit of that study in a survey next week. Tonight, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. I would like to say, I know we're going to pray in just a few minutes, but I'd like to say uh, we were, had the privilege of attending Miss Jill's mother's celebration, homegoing celebration, the funeral service this afternoon, hence the, the dress that we're wearing. But anyway, we heard some lovely, wonderful gospel music uh, from Miss Robin. She always does a great job. And then a fine Bible message from our pastor. It was as good as you will hear concerning Second Corinthians chapter 5. And uh, an exposition of that and how it made me look forward even more to that glorious event when we'll step out of this tabernacle and ascend into the third heaven to be with the Lord Jesus in paradise. It's going to be something wonderful that we'll experience. Now, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not trying to talk anybody into uh, liking death, but I'm saying for the Christian it's a wonderful experience, and we celebrated that. And I'd ask you to pray for Miss Jill and her family. Uh, Jill is one of our own, of course. We love her and all that she means to this church. First John chapter number 1. Um, Brother Gabriel is going to hand you out the first handout that I'll give you tonight. Remember, we're building uh, a, a handbook of reference so that you can... Go back and, and study any time you want to. So Brother Gabriel is going to be handing out these uh, First John studies. And when, once we have them all delivered, we'll begin our study after a word of prayer. Open your Bible to First John chapter number 1 and be ready then for uh, the, the commentary. First John chapter number 1. There is some background that I need to give you before we even study 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and I'll, I'll give you that when we can have your attention. Of course, you're looking at the handouts and all now. 
uh, I, I'd like for you to just wait till we go over them together. I think it'll mean more to you that way. Some of the material I've given you is not self-explanatory, but that's what I'm for is to teach the precious Word of God, and, and I hope it'll be a blessing to you. I'd like to take us back to that primitive time when John, the beloved disciple and apostle and elder of our Lord, was writing these three letters. Now remember, John not only wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, but he wrote the gospel that bears his name and the book of Revelation. So all of those letters were written by this wonderful apostle, the apostle John. So we'll begin at 1st John, and we want to know, I'm going to give you some background, and then we'll look at the handout that I've given you. I'm going to try to get through all three of them tonight. If I don't, and I have a watch, I won't hold you over, do my very best. You can take them home and look at them for yourself. So let's pray together and ask you to pray for me. Remember our dear pastor, ask God to bless him, refresh him, encourage him, and send him back to us after the Sabbath. Father, we're so thankful to have the privilege and honor to stand behind this pulpit where a Bible preaching pastor, a teaching shepherd stands every week and has for several years now. We thank you for him. We ask you to bless him and Miss Carla as they rest and refresh themselves and recharge. I just pray, God, that you'd bless them. I thank you for the privilege of sharing the word of God with your people. I pray for Miss Jill and her family, Lord, in the departing of her dear mother that's gone on to be with Jesus. And Lord, what a wonderful celebration that was. I pray now that the Holy Spirit, who superintended the writing of your word, might give us light, might open these passages unto us, and help us to see what John was writing to those early, early disciples way back a long time ago in church history. Help us, dear Lord. Help us to create that environment. Help us to learn some things tonight. For Christ's sake, amen. Now, as John begins to write these letters, I think he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and perhaps even the gospel at the same time. Around A.D. 90 was when he was writing. In that day, and you've got to listen very carefully to this if you're going to understand 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. In that day, there were many false teachers, false doctrine, and apostates. Now, there's a difference between a false teacher and an apostate. A person can truly be saved and teach something that he believes is true, but it be false. It won't line up with the Word of God. That's one thing. Then there are teachers, false teachers, uh, which the church has. Not false prophets, that's for Israel, but false teachers in this dispensation. But that's different altogether from an apostate. apostate is, an apostate is a person that knows the truth, 
but has turned from it, rejects it. And in that day, there were many that were going about in these new churches that had sprung up, especially in Asia. That's where we're going to be studying tonight. In and around Ephesus, where John and Paul started churches, there were uh, demonic emissaries. There were men who would come into those churches who were apostates, who, uh, I'll tell you in a minute some things they believe, but who, whose mission it was was to turn the church that had been established, had been born, and had been introduced to the Word of God. Their mission was to turn those churches away from God's Word to false beliefs, apostate beliefs. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John is written to rebuke that type of teacher and teaching, that apostasy that was going on even in John's day. Think about it now. Even in John's day, there were false teachers, false doctrine, and apostasy had already begun. Paul tells us that it had begun in his day, of course, and it was and is to get worse until finally, folks, the end of the church age will be characterized by apostasy. The lukewarmness of the Laodicean church is a typical example. Laodicean, the word laos means people. The diocese is the, the church. It's the people's church, doesn't belong to Christ. He's pushed out, standing at the door knocking, asking for entrance into the church that's supposed to belong to him. The church has become so apostate, Christ snatches the true church away, and those people who are lost, who are apostate, will be left here to go through the tribulation period. So, in that day, there was a man, and there were many of them, but there was a particular man named Serenthus. Serenthus was a Jew. He lived in Egypt. Somehow he had made his way to Asia, to Ephesus and the surrounding areas where those New Testament churches had sprung up. Serenthius was a terrible enemy of the gospel. Let me give you just a little bit about what this apostate believed. First of all, he preached that Jesus Christ was the physical son of Joseph. That would mean then that he denied the deity of our Lord because if he wasn't virgin born, he was then a sinner just like you and me. So he denied the incarnation, the virgin birth, and taught that Jesus Christ was the physical son of Joseph. Not only that, but this guy named Serenthus, who John does not name, but writes these letters to rebuke him, him and his doctrine, this man, being a Jew, 
had some Jewish ideas. For example, he believed in keeping the Sabbath. That was a, a, a time, a thing that was given to Israel. He believed in keeping the law and circumcision. That's real Jewish, isn't it? But he also preached and believed the beginnings of Gnosticism. Now, I've taught you what Gnosticism is, but just a brief refresher. In that day, that doctrine began to flourish, which said that all matter is evil. That meant the earth is evil. Our bodies, which are made of matter, are evil. And that Jesus Christ was one of, only one of, the many gods in a long chain of gods because they couldn't understand how a God, a true holy God, could make a sinful earth and sinful man. So here's what they believed. Gnosticism believes that that true God sent out from himself an emanation, another God that was a little less holier than he was, and that God in return did the same thing until finally in that long list of gods that emanated from that one true God, a God came into existence that was so far removed in holiness and righteousness from the true and living God that he could create the earth, which was evil, and man's body, which was evil. So Gnosticism said that Jesus Christ was one of those gods in that long chain of gods, and they alone had secret books that a person had access to if he would join the Gnostic cult. In these hidden books, you could get all the wisdom that you needed and understanding to graduate yourself from one God to the other until finally you reached the true and living God. And they alone had these books and this wisdom so that a person could become a Gnostic, which means to know, and they could finally and ultimately get back to the true and living God. Well, what does that do to the gospel? Of course, it destroys it because we know that Jesus Christ said that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man came to the Father but by him. The Gnostics, on the other hand, said that he is just one of the gods, and he has to take his place among those gods. Now listen to this. Gnosticism branched off into two arms. The first branch was what was known as docetic Gnostic. The second branch was ascetic Gnostic. Now since the body is evil, the docetic Gnostic said, you can do anything you want to with it. Doesn't matter. The body's evil, it's going back to the ground. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Any kind of excesses, any type of immorality, anything that you wanted to do was okay if you were a docetic 
Nasty. Because you could still find your way back with this hidden wisdom. You ought to read Colossians in, in that frame. With this hidden wisdom, you could get back to the true and holy God. That was docetic Gnosticism. Ascetic Gnosticism said, oh no, since the body is evil, you can't allow it to have any kind of pleasure, no immorality. You've got to perfect the body in the flesh. The ascetic Gnostic was sort of like the Pharisees that we read about in the gospel. So we got those two lines of Gnosticism. Serentheus not only brought about his Jewish concepts and ideas, but he married that with Gnosticism. What an unholy union. Believe it or not, he gained quite a following. So much so that he and his disciples began to threaten those churches in Ephesus. And so John, who felt a pastoral responsibility to these people, writes 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. They ought to be understood together. Although they're separate letters, all three of them are directed to Serenthus, who has taught in the church. He somehow gained a position of pastor, and he's usurping authority over the church and churches, and he has disciples like Diotrephes set in the church that, again, has found a place of authority. And John, the beloved John, writes a letter to them, but when it gets to the church, Diotrephes tears it up and throws it away. He says, we're not listening to John. I don't accept him and I don't accept his writings. Not only that, these people who followed Serentheus because he rejected all of Paul and Peter's writings and most of the New Testament, they said, we follow this so-called holy man, Serentheus, who not only knows about the Old Testament, but now has given us light and wisdom through these hidden books to help us obtain epignosis, full knowledge. And that's what Paul writes in Colossians. That all the wisdom that there could ever be is in Jesus Christ. And you don't need any hidden books. He is wisdom. He is knowledge. He's everything that the believer needs. And Colossians is also written as a combatant letter to Gnosticism. Now, since we know the background, let's look at the handout. 1 John is unique in several ways. Please notice that the letter is addressed to no church. Look at verse 1. I didn't even pray, did I? Verse number 1. Look at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, 
which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. Do you see anybody mentioned there? I mean, do you see anybody that you could say was the author from that verse? No. Do you see anybody that might be with the author as he writes? No. Do you see anybody, any church, or any group of people that this letter's written to? No. No. Watch this, please. There is no, no church addressed, no particular individual addressed. Now that is unique because we are accustomed to reading Paul and Peter's letters and there is a, 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 an address, there is a, a name, and, and so on. We, we see that in these other epistles, but you don't see that in John. He doesn't mention any particular individual that he's writing to. Secondly, there is no epistolary introduction which includes the author's name, nor those that are with him, as we are accustomed to reading in Peter and Paul's letters. Thirdly, the letter lends itself to no real divisions. Now, if you go back and check all the handouts that I've given you, starting at Matthew, and we've come all the way now to 1 John, you'll find that I've given you divisions of each book. 1 John doesn't lend itself to any major divisions because it's a letter that's written to uh, people who are born again that John feels a pastoral responsibility for and he sometimes repeats himself. He brings up subjects and answers them. So there's really no major divisions in 1 John. But notice, please, <clears throat> There is an unnamed enemy that John addresses who is troubling these believers that John calls little children. His name is Serentius, a heretic. He was very active in Ephesus at the time of the writing of this letter. He taught that Jesus was the physical son of Joseph, denying the virgin birth and deity of our Lord. He also taught that the eon, the eon, Christ, was united with Jesus at his baptism, but left him before his passion. In other words, what he's teaching is that Jesus was a man like anybody else. His father was Joseph. At Jesus' baptism, the Christ part of Jesus came upon him. And he did his miracles, he worked, uh, he, he taught, he did all those things that the, that the Bible tells us that he did. But before he went to the cross, the Christ nature left him. And he again was just a man. So here is this man from Egypt, a Jew who combined Jewish ideas of the Sabbath and circumcision with the beginnings of Gnosticism. He posed, he posed a great threat to the believing community. 
Although John doesn't name him, he writes to rebuke him. His teaching, rebukes his teaching, and to assure his readers of the truth. The letter is a whole. It is woven together with truth and pertinent subjects that pose a threat in that day as well as today. The heretical doctrine is introduced in chapter 2, verse 18. Would you look at it with me, please? Chapter 2 of John, verse 18. Notice the term little children. I'll tell you about that in just a few minutes. Little children. It is the last time. And ye, as you've heard that Antichrist. Now, there's two ways that, uh, two, two words that you'll see in the New Testament, Antichrist. One is Antichristos. That's this one. The other one is Sudeo Christos, meaning a false Christ. This is not talking about that Antichrist that's going to come on the scene in the tribulation period. This is talking about people who are against Christ. The Greek preposition anti gives the picture of two opponents, a box, two boxers against each other. So you've heard that there are people who are against, they are the opponents of Christ. Notice what he says again, if you will, please. He says that you've heard that Antichrist shall come. Even now are there many Antichrists. You see, people who are against Christ, whereby we know it is the last time. Now, I wish I had opportunity to talk to you about what the New Testament teaches concerning last days of Israel, last days of the church, last time, and, and, and so on. It's taught in the New Testament. Hebrews tells us that when Jesus Christ came into this world, His coming into this world marked the beginning of God's dealing with man, the last time, the last days of God dealing with the human family. But there's a difference between the last days of Israel and the last days of the church, the church age, and last time. I wish I had time to deal with it. I don't tonight, but suffice it to say that even in John's day, there were people coming out of the closets, I guess, coming out of the walls, that was opposed to the teaching that Jesus Christ, as God's Son, had come in the flesh. That's anti-Christian. That's the spirit of the Antichrist who will actually be present in the tribulation period. He's the false Messiah, however. He is Sudeo Christos. He's the false Christ. These people are against Christ and the spirit that they have is going to continue into the church age until it closes at the rapture and culminates in the person of the Antichrist. And we won't look at these others, time won't permit, but flip your handout over, please, if you will, and look at the back with me. 
There is no other inspired letter in the entire New Testament that is as intimate and loving and kind as 1 John. Seven times John uses the word technia, little children. That's like little guys, four, five, six, seven, eight years old. That's the words of an old father. And John was an old man when he wrote these letters, but he addresses them so intimately, so lovingly. Technia, little children. Twice he addresses them as pathia. Pathia is a word for newborns, just being born. And there were many of them who had just been born again. Some of them had grown a little bit, but in John's eyes, they are his little children and newborns. What a tender letter this is for the new believer. I don't know how many times I've said to people who've been saved in my ministry, I want you to begin reading 1 John because it is a beautiful instruction to those who have just been saved. So tender, so loving, so kind from John. And he calls them beloved six times. These are the words of an aged old father to his family. The author is John, the same man that wrote the gospel that bears his name, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. Date of writing. Most believe around the year A.D. 90, along with 2nd and 3rd John and the Gospel of John. The theme. We have already identified the reason for John writing his epistle. It was occasioned by the anti-Christian heretical teaching of Serenthus. Although he's not named, John identifies him through doctrine. But was also written to instruct those believers who John felt a pastoral responsibility for. 1 John is an encyclical letter. That means it was designed to go around to different churches. And when it was sent around to different churches, of course those churches made copies of this letter. And so when it left Asia and went to Europe, they wanted copies. And so there were multitudes of different places where the New Testament books were copied. That's encyclical. It's circled. It was used by those churches in Ephesus, surrounding areas, but, but for believers in every place and every time. The major subjects found in 1 John are truth, light versus darkness, fellowship both with God and with each other, the new birth, and Christian walk. That's a general survey of 1 John. Keep in mind that 1st, 2nd, 3rd John ought to be read together because he's dealing with the same man, Serentheus. Brother Larry, will you give out the second handouts, please? This Serentheus was a Jew from Egypt who believed that we ought to keep the Sabbath. He believed in keeping the law. He believed in circumcision. And he believed in the beginning of Gnosticism and taught it in the church. He was so influential, so popular, that he gained a lot of followers. 
One particular man who's a follower of Serenthus was Diotrephes. Somehow, Diotrephes had gained a role. He had gotten a role in the church and began to assert authority over those believers. John points him out. He's a follower of Serenthus. And he also points out a godly man. Now John has sent a letter to the church. Diotrephes has torn it up, thrown it away. He rejects John's authority and he forbids anybody in the church from helping those missionaries that John sends to the church for support and fellowship. He excommunicates anybody that will help these traveling missionaries. That's what 2nd and 3rd John is about. And we're going to see it here in just a second. 2nd John. If you'll notice the handout, 2nd John, unlike the first letter, gives to us the author, who is the elder, John, and to those whom the letter is addressed. Would you look at 2 John with me, please? First chapter. Verse number one. There's only one chapter, by the way. You didn't get that. It just went like a lead balloon. Huh? Verse number one. Look at the difference here. The elder, and everybody in that day knew who the elder was. It was John. Unto the elect lady, oh, that ought, to, that ought to perk some ears up, and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, and this is important, I'm not the only one that loves this lady, but also all they that have known the truth. We'll stop there. You can read that short letter, but you can see that Second John is very much unlike First John in the fact that a man who writes it is identified, the elder John, who's also the apostle, by the way. And to those to whom the letter is addressed. Look at this, please. The elect lady and her children. This title doesn't mean a lady that John knew. It could not mean an individual. See verse 1. Let's go back to verse 1. And look at the latter part of that verse. He says, I love this lady, but not, not only I, but also all they that have known the truth. <clears throat> now, it is, a, uh, it is an, an absolute, unbelievable way to think that this is an elect lady because not everybody in Asia would know this one woman. And he says here that everybody who has known the truth loves this lady. So you see, it couldn't possibly be talking about an individual. I don't care if it had even been a man. It's said lady because the church is feminine. And he's talking about the church here, not a lady, not an individual. And some of your Bibles may say differently, but believe me, 
He's talking to the church. Not everybody in Asia who were saved would know this one woman. So he couldn't talk, possibly be talking about one lady. Now notice please. The recipients of 2 John were those who because of the new birth knew the church because they were part of it. Everybody who's ever been saved knows about the church. Wouldn't you agree? They may not even be a part of a local church, but they know about the church. How long did it take you to know that there was a church existing when you were coming up? You just took it for granted because the church, even back then, was in my day, was a part of the community. When I got saved, I wanted to join the church. I wanted to be baptized. I wanted to be part of it. And that's who he's talking about here. He's talking about a local church, not an individual lady. But take it for what it's worth. This letter should be read and understood with 3 John. They are connected. John is writing both letters to continue his rebuke to a certain Serenthus and his followers and to instruct those believers who were the object of his attacks. These deceivers <laughs> believed and taught that Jesus was not God in the flesh, but was the physical son of Joseph. The key phrase is the truth. And by this, he means, and I want you to get this, folks, by the truth, John means the entire body of revealed truth that Jesus deposited with the church. Would you flip on over in your Bible to verse 3 of Jude? I'll show you something. Jude verse 3. When he says that, uh, that phrase, the truth, he's not talking about any individual truth, which there are many, but he's talking about that combined body of revealed truth that we call doctrine that was delivered once and for all to the church. Look at Jude verse 3. In verse 3, <coughs> pardon me, Jude says, When I gave all diligence to write unto you of the salvation that can be shared by everyone, common salvation, it was needful, or constraint was upon me, to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend, look at this, for thee. See that definite article there? It's the pointing finger in Greek. For the faith which was once delivered unto the saints, or once and for all delivered unto the saints. Now listen carefully to me. Jesus said to his disciples, I've got many things to say to you, but you're not able right now. You're not able to understand all that I'm going to say to you. But when he comes, talking about the Holy Spirit, John chapter 14, John chapter 16, when he comes, the parakletos, the one called alongside to help, to teach, and so on, he, not it, God help us, not it. He's a person. He shall lead you and guide you into a double L, all truth. One thing the Holy Spirit does 
is he teaches God's people that body of revealed truth that was deposited by Jesus when he went away back into heaven. He called certain men like Peter, James, and John and so on to write the rest of the things he wanted to say to the church. It was deposited to the church. All that God has ever said is right here. There'll be no more revelation. It's all right here. We need no prophets for all the revelation is right here. Now I can preach prophecy, but I'm not a prophet. I can preach the prophecy that's given in this book. And when this wonderful word of God came, when the completion came, 1 Corinthians 13, 10, the partial gifts that was given to those early believers passed off the stage. Apostle, prophet, speaking in foreign languages, laying on of hands, miracles, and so on. All of those temporary gifts passed off the stage when the completed canon of Scripture came. Thank God we have it. He deposited it with us. And when John says, I want you to pay attention to the truth, he's talking about that body of revealed truth, the faith. It's called the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. Now, if I had time, I'd talk to you about the way the word faith is used in the New Testament. I don't have. Let me just hit it quickly. Personal faith, you can lose. Saving faith, it's a gift you can't lose. Personal faith, if you want more of it, read the Word of God. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. That's personal faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. That's saving faith. It is the gift of God. You can't lose it. And finally, faith, that means the deposit of doctrine Jesus gave to the church. That's what John means by the truth. Now let's go back to our handout right quickly. The truth is vitally important because there were many deceivers that had entered into the world that confessed not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. See 2 John verse 7. Look at verse 7 with me. Get out of Jude. Look at verse 7. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. That's Serentheus. This is a deceiver and one who is against Christ. He's an antichrist. So John says, this is why I'm writing to you, to let you know that there are many deceivers already in the world in John's day that are wanting to <coughs> pervert the gospel. Would you look at this please? Evidently, John had sent some missionaries to the church. But Diotrephes, who was a follower of Serentius, by the way, had rejected them and the letter that John had written and refused to allow anyone to help those missionaries. John promises to deal with this church boss when he visits them. Look at 3 John verse 10. 3 John, 3 John verse 10. Look at what John says he's going to do. He won't let this go on very long. He's going to go over there 
and, and see those churches in Ephesus and around in Asia. Well, look at verse 9. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, a disciple of Serenthus, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he does, pratting against us with malicious words, not content therewith, neither doeth he himself receive those missionary brethren, but forbids them that would, and casteth them, or excommunicates them, out of the church. John says, when I get there, I'll deal with him. Just hang on. I'm coming, and I'll deal with this apostate. If you'll flip over 2 John, I'll try to hurry right on and, and get you out of here. I know you wanted to go probably. Author, this is important here, folks. <coughs> John the Elder. Now, in that day, some of these false teachers tried to confuse the author of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John so that they could say they weren't inspired. There was one John the Elder. There was one John the Apostle and other Johns that could have written these letters, they say. So it's very important that you know that John the Elder is the same man as John the Apostle, the servant of Christ. Would you look at author, John the Elder, Apostle, and Servant of Christ. There is no John the Elder and another John, an Apostle, as some assume. John is both the Elder and the Apostle. Look at the date of writing. That can be very important for the authenticity of the book. Around A.D. 90, along with 1 John and 3 John, look at the theme. John's desire is to warn those whom he feels a pastoral responsibility to be aware of the dangerous deception that has been introduced by Serenthius and his followers. Truth is the theme and the resulting duty to defend it by knowing their enemy and the false doctrine he taught. Look at this. This is John's words now. <clears throat> Anyone not following the truth as given by the apostles, according to John, is a liar. You know what the scripture says about a liar, right? They're going to have their part in the lake of fire. John says this guy's a liar and a deceiver. This letter stands forever as a bulwark against heresy in that day as well as today. The deity of our Lord, meaning that he's both God and man, shall always be taught and preached by men who know the truth. All right, brother, will you hand out the third John letter? I've got about uh, nearly 10 minutes and we'll close. Make sure everybody gets one. I hope you'll keep these and consult them every once in a while uh, to help you in understanding. <laughs> third John will sum up all that I've been saying. Remember, they're a unit, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. They have to be looked at as a whole because he's, he's dealing with the same guy and the same doctrine. If you, get, if you get the understanding of these two books, 
John has written them a letter. The church is there. Diotrephes has rejected that letter. He's rejected John. He's a serpent authority over the church, which he has none. He is excommunicating those people that would receive those missionaries that John is sending. He's rejecting them, but he's promoting his own missionaries, these men that preach and teach what he believes that I've already discussed with you. So John is writing to say, there's a good man among you, Demetrius, follow him, but do not follow this apostate, Diotrephes. And so 3 John sums it up. And if you'll look at it with me, I'll try to hurry and be done. 3 John is the culmination of 1 and 2 John. The deceivers have been identified as well as those who are true, genuine believers, like Demetrius. Serenthius and his followers, Diotrephes, who's mentioned in 3 John, by the way, are those whom John calls liars and deceivers. Boy, he don't mince words, does he? John rejoices over those who are walking in the truth, Demetrius, and are staying true to the doctrine that the apostles have given them. They have been assaulted by the era of Gnosticism and Jewish ideas such as keeping the Sabbath, the law, and circumcision, as well as the denial of the incarnation of Jesus Christ as God in the flesh. Can I stop right there for just a second? Would you look up here? You might say, well, what relevance has that got for us today? Well, it's been my experience that God's people in a local church are a very protected and secluded people. Most of them never go out and listen to other men preach and what other men are teaching. They don't go out and run around to different denominations and, and listen to apostates on the television and so on. Most of them pretty much come to a local church so they are sheltered. They're protected. Thank God we've got a, a, a teaching shepherd here. They're protected. That shepherd guards against false doctrine, but folks out there in the religious world, the same things that Satan was teaching back in AD 90 is being taught today. Why would you have to believe in a virgin birth? I don't know how many times I've heard that from apostates. Why would you, why is it so necessary? Well, I'll tell you why it's necessary. If Jesus Christ wasn't virgin born, he's a sinner, just like you and me. I'll tell you why it's important. Isaiah 7, 14, God said his son would be virgin born, Bethula. And in the Greek New Testament, Parthenos, a lady, and she ought to know, his mother said, how can this be seeing I know not a man? If that's not Virgin, I don't know how she'd say it. She was a virgin. When she conceived of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ is the virgin-born Son of God 
God stepped outside the natural means of procreation between man and woman. He overshadowed that little handmaid about 14 or 15 years old. And in nine months, she gave birth to the darling Son of God. It's absolutely necessary to your salvation. If he wasn't virgin born, we're still in our sins. We have no hope. Those we buried are lost forever. Thank God I'm glad to report to you that both in Old and New Testaments, God declares that Jesus Christ was virgin born. Physically impossible, I agree. Spiritually, it happened. God's able to go over and above that which is natural and physical and do what he wants to, when he wants to, how he wants to, with whomever he wants to. He's almighty God. And he breathed upon that little virgin womb and the darling son of God stepped down that golden ladder into the body of, the, of little Mary and dwelt among us. And John says we fixed our gaze upon him. We watched him. We watched everything that he did. We handled him. We touched him. We heard what he preached. And now we are sharing these things with you so that you can fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with him, with the Father. Third John continues and consumes what John's been writing about. Diotrephes has somehow assumed the role of pastor. He's seeking to usurp authority over the true believers. He refuses to receive the missionaries that John has sent and seeks to excommunicate those that help them. He's rejected the letter uh, that John sent, but John promises to deal with him when he visits them. Meanwhile, he points out the man to follow, Demetrius, and commends them for helping support the missionaries. The author is John. Date of writing is the same. The theme, the theme is very clear. I want you to get this, folks. A believer is to reject unholy leaders. Would to God that happen in our day? There'd be a lot of pulpits vacant. Reject those unholy leaders and their doctrine and to follow appointed and approved leaders such as Demetrius. Look at this. Second John is written about the personal walk of a Christian in the day of apostasy. Third John is written about the personal responsibility of a believer to his local church in the day of apostasy. I didn't write that. Mr. Schofield wrote that, and I give him credit. Conclusion, taken together, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John give to us a look into the lives of those in that early day church and the early day of the church, their exposure to deceivers, apostates, and the kind of doctrine they held. The wonderful instruction that the apostle John gives to them and to any who are assaulted by error, the walk and fellowship of true believers in the midst of circumstances they are experiencing. We can glean such great truth 
from these three letters, they are indispensable to the church today. Well, that's 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. It's very hurried, and a lot is left out, but that's the best I could do in the time that I have. Thank you for listening. Let's look over our prayer list and pray, and then we'll go home.